Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of What's New in History. Today, we have a special guest. It's Dr. Peter Brand, who wrote an awesome new book called Ramses II, Egypt's Ultimate Pharaoh. And the following is my discussion with Peter Brand. And I do want to take just a second to thank you, listeners, just for giving me the opportunity to be able to do something like this. When you hear me on this episode, I usually do trip over my tongue somewhat, but I was tripping over my tongue a little more than usual. I was possibly a little starstruck because this book was really awesome. And I was really excited to talk to Peter Brand. So here is our discussion. I hope you guys enjoy it. We are here today with Peter Brand. Is it Dr. Peter Brand? Yes. Professor Peter Brand? So Dr. Peter Brand, the University, University of Memphis, of Memphis yeah. in Tennessee, not in Egypt, right? Not the Egyptian one, in the Tennessee one, yes. Right, because exactly. when I first saw it, I was, that's why I was asking your time zone. I was thinking, well, maybe he's in Egypt. <laughs> Since you're, you are an Egyptologist, right? Yes, I'm actually hoping to get there in March. I hadn't been there since before COVID, so it'll be nice to get back. Oh, yeah, amazing. So, yeah, so basically, so um, Dr. Peter Brand here, he wrote, he has a new book. It's about Ramses II. It's Ramses II, Egypt's ultimate pharaoh. It's also known as Ramses the Great, isn't he? Yes. And I just, I'm going to just say, and I'm going to turn a lot of it over to, to you. I just, um, when I when I first, um, you know, got the message to, to to do this interview, and then I got your the book on a PDF, and it was like 600 pages, and I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to get through this? And I got through most of the book in a week because um, it's a really well written and it's really interesting. And it's there's pictures, not to say I just need to look at pictures, but there's a lot of pictures. So, you know, kudos to it's a really good book. So, I mean, tell, tell us about the book. Tell us about Ramses. Just start like that. Yes. Well, as you say, you know, uh, he is often called Ramses the Great. And of course, you might ask, well, why didn't I call uh, 
the book uh, Ramses II, Egypt's Greatest Pharaoh, is because that name was taken. Uh-huh. But um, the, the part of the reason why I'm calling him the ultimate pharaoh is because over the course of more than 3,000 years, of course, there were dozens and dozens of pharaohs. But few stand out as much as Ramses II in terms of being the epitome of everything that a pharaoh is supposed to be. And of course, earlier pharaohs like Khufu, who builds the Great Pyramid, uh, the great warrior pharaoh like Thutmose the third, the uh, often called the first monotheist Akhenaten with his famous wife Nefertiti, or the golden boy king Tutankhamun, are as or perhaps sometimes even better known than Ramses. Uh, certainly in his own time and for uh, hundreds of years after his death, during pharaonic times down to modern times, you know he was Ramses the Great. And uh, he, he really did epitomize everything that a pharaoh was supposed to be. Uh, he was a great uh, warrior king. Uh, among other things, he fought this famous battle, the Battle of Kadesh, against a rival empire, uh, the Hittites, who were uh, occupying what is now uh, Turkey and fighting over uh, Assyria, and in particular, a city-state called Kadesh that these two empires had been vying for with each other for more than 60 years. And Ramses fought a famous battle there uh, and then recorded it in splendid detail with sort of this media blitz where he covered the walls of Egypt's temples with very elaborate battle scenes and, and, uh, and a textual account that sort of is more uh, epic poetry celebrating his role as single-handedly, single-handedly supposedly defeating uh, the enemy. Yeah. He was a great builder as well. And uh, the interesting thing that I tried to focus on in the book that is not as well known is he was also a great diplomat and statesman. Uh, and of course, then finally, he also becomes, as the Egyptians call him, a great god. He transforms himself into a living deity on earth, a kind of incarnation of the Egyptian sun god. And while Egyptian pharaohs were all at least somewhat divine and their parentage was uh, was considered to be divine, few mm-hmm. pharaohs ever actually ruled on earth as living gods the way that Ramses II did. Well, that's uh, yeah, amazing. I mean, so in Ramses' time, we're talking, he was pharaoh from when? Well, um, as one of my professors used to say, that far back dates are like uh, prices, they're subject to change. Okay. Um, and so within, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, the space of about, you know, 10 or 15 years, we can estimate. But uh, the date, I would argue, is that he came to the throne in about 1279 BC, and he rules into his 67th uh, year. He was probably in his early 20s when uh, he came to the throne. And after ruling for just a bit over 66 years, he would have been in his as, as young as his mid 80s or as, as old as his uh, early 90s. I suspect he was somewhere around maybe 87 or 89 when he died, which is still Amazing. impressive. Yeah, right. Uh, and, uh, you know, almost 67 years, very few monarchs in all of human history ruled as long. I mean, even more recently, you think, of course, of uh, Louis XIV, the son king of France, who comes to the throne as a child, or uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth, who just died last yeah. year. And, of course, uh, she was 96. So, 
again, it, he's really quite extraordinary. The other thing you have to understand about longevity in the ancient times, the average life expectancy, expectancy back then is about 35 years. So Ramses lives the equivalent of something like three lifetimes. Yeah, right. He outlived most of his children, right? Yes, and likely even many of his grandchildren. I assume. Amazing. Not like the Sumerian kings who lived for like 27,000 years, though. This is like <laughs> an, he actually lived, lived this long. <laughs> yeah, so that's a long time ago for people. And you know what I, I think um, was interesting reading your book is that you have so much information from such a long time ago. You know, there's still a lot of written. you This period, it seems like there's a lot of written you know, information might do the podcast in our regular in our regular um narrative. Sometimes I can't hardly find anything. I can hardly find anything on some decades, you know. And you have so much information. There's so much in the book. Well well, we're very fortunate about relatively speaking, for ancient Egypt, this period that he lived in, and even sort of this age, what what, what Egyptologists called the, the new kingdom, this period when Egypt was essentially a, an imperial power. Uh, from roughly about 1550 BC uh, uh, e down to about 1100 BCE uh, during three dynasties, the 18th, 19th, and 20th. This is the golden age of Egypt's imperial power, uh, and it's very well documented. When you're talking about thousands of years ago, though, one we have to understand uh, that we only have fragments, really. And even somebody as well-documented as Ramses II, uh, very often the evidence is still rather fragmentary. We, like I mentioned this famous battle he fought, the Battle of Kadesh. Well, we actually have a number of inscriptions, uh, individual inscriptions carved on the walls of various temples across Egypt and even into Nubia in the south of Egypt. And despite this fact, the main textual record of the, the, that talks about the battle, we still have gaps in our knowledge of the text because, because no example of the text is actually perfectly preserved. And in a few cases, there are passages where every single one of the examples that we have something are actually missing that one little bit. Now, oh. overall, it's still very well preserved and we've gotten more than 90% of it, but it's sort of an, an example of just how, how how fragile our connection with ancient times is. And there's so many other documents that we only have one copy. And if that's damaged, then we're, we're left guessing about what, what, what was really going on. Right. And in that particular battle, there was, I mean, there's, they're making up some lies as they, what you have written too, right? I mean, the Hittites say they won and the, um, the Egyptians say they won. I like particularly liked that I didn't know until I read your book is how he he basically claims that he single-handedly you know fought the battle and what I also thought was interesting if you I, I was gonna when I was reading it I thought it was interesting that um it's like a way a, some uh, a tradition that they write that the pharaoh pretty much puts down his own army and says that you know they're a bunch of losers and they're a bunch of cowards and I had to go in and do this all myself that was kind of interesting yeah, and this brings up a, a, one a, one of the main themes in the book, which is that uh, like every culture, every civilization that has ever existed, the Egyptians had what, their own what we call their own worldview. They had their own ideology, and their ideology placed the pharaoh at the, quite literally at the center of the universe, 
And his job was to essentially uphold the order of the universe against all forces of chaos. And of mm. course, foreign peoples were considered agents of, of chaos and dangerous to the, you know, the order of the of the universe. But uh, Ramses is 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 often called, you know, again in shorthand, a liar, or you know, telling us an untruth, or uh, you know, uh, exaggerating things grossly. And there are definitely things that are not factual in his uh, record. And it's easy to essentially call him a liar. One of the things that I try to emphasize is that that because this ideological worldview was so central to Egyptian thinking, and the purpose of these records, these beautiful uh, works of art, these elaborate texts, these uh, you know in, intricate carvings on the walls of the uh, temples. Their purpose is not to narrate history. Their, their purpose is not to tell us as historians what happened. They are there to glorify the king and to, to uh, demonstrate the ideological worldview of the ancient Egyptians. And so what really happened in historical accuracy is really a secondary uh, importance to the Egyptians. What really matters is is essentially celebrating this I, this ideology of the pharaoh as the champion of order against forces of chaos. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is when you consider Ramses again telling us things that just don't add up, like that he single handedly hmm. defeated uh, the enemies, or that the the army were a bunch of cowards that that deserted him in 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 uh, in the middle of battle. When you start comparing it to the accounts of other pharaohs and their battles, the same kind of thing turns up. There's a there's a pharaoh from a couple hundred years before uh, Ramses, who's often considered sort of the Napoleon of Egypt, a guy named uh, Moses III, and his battle accounts are not nearly as flowery as Ramses II. Uh, but he tells us that, of course, that he single-handedly defeated the enemy. And at one point, he also says that when he uh, forced the enemy to retreat and to basically he routed them, that they would have instantly defeated the enemies, except that the army again messed up and they went and uh, uh, looted the battlefield. So you can find, again, the same theme that the pharaoh is the single-handed army of one who defeats uh, all comers and that the army is sort of along for the ride and they're more likely to mess things up or to run away as cowards rather than That's actually helping the king so in that sense ramses is no different than any other pharaoh you wonder if like the the, the, the you hope that the soldiers were illiterate that they would <laughs> they don't want to hear their their fearless leader say they're a bunch of cowards right <laughs> that's not the way to motivate people yeah and and but i again we have to understand that this is essentially the ancient egyptian equivalent of spin yeah uh, of the and and uh everybody knew what their role was this was just the way they talked about things because again ramses never seems to have punished uh, the army, and yeah, fact, right. you know that the pharaohs were actually very careful to reward. And we have this uh, beautiful inscription that tells us about how just this average soldier, a guy named Mos, um, received a reward along with a group of other soldiers from the pharaoh, and that Ramses gave them gifts of things made of gold and silver and bronze, these valuable objects 
you know, it, they didn't have money back then. So receiving these uh, gold and silver and metal trinkets was was a was a was a spectacular source of wealth. And he's showering these gifts on loyal soldiers. So again, he wasn't always berating the army. Right, right. And that was just their way to write it. I mean, we know the like the Assyrian kings had their way, you know, they, they always looked exactly the same. And they were kind of single handedly destroying people. And they're just a little more graphic on the yeah. stuff that they were doing. And, and, you know, it's interesting, if you look at the records of other civilizations, whether you're talking about the Assyrians or the Babylonians, the Hittites, the ancient Romans, the king always says, I'm the one that defeated the enemy. I'm the one that did this. So, again, it's sort of the oldest, it's the oldest story in the world that the boss sure. takes credit for everything. I could imagine we we had a recent president that would have been something like that. He would have loved to have been able to write, I think, hieroglyphics on the wall and take credit for everything. But we're not political in this podcast. <laughs> I, I was thinking about the army, though, too, just a question I brought up. Like, were the soldiers... From Egypt, I thought it was a a thing. My co-host Dan a lot of times says that Egyptians didn't want to leave Egypt because then if they die outside of Egypt, then it's not good. So, could you yeah, tell me a little bit that it's interesting because uh, the, the the Egyptians did have a kind of negative view of foreign peoples and foreign places. Um, we have various kinds of literary texts that talk about how miserable it is to, you know, leave Egypt. Uh, we even have these texts that sort of uh, poke fun at the miseries of a soldier's life and saying that, you know, you'll be marching overseas and your feet will get sore and you'll be attacked by bandits and, and you know, Bedouin. And even if you're a chariot officer, which is like a really, you know, sexy kind of job, you know, adventurous, it's like being an ancient equivalent of like a fighter pilot or a, a medieval yeah. knight. But the, the the scribes write these things, you know, even if you're a chariot officer, all these bad things will happen to you if you go overseas and your chariot will crash and you'll be robbed and all this kind of thing. And so these literary uh, uh, texts that were used also to train the scribes played up how miserable it is to be overseas. And again, I'm sure for the average foot soldier and even for a king on campaign, there were hardships from growing abroad. But that didn't stop the Egyptians from fighting overseas. And in fact, they were doing this for, for you know, not just centuries, but even millennia. From right. prehistoric times down into the end of pharaonic civilization, we have evidence that they would send their armies abroad. Um, they didn't, on the other hand, outside of the Nile Valley, they didn't seem to want to settle abroad. So... In the Nile Valley in, in ancient Nubia, which was to the south of Egypt, because it was the Nile Valley, I think they felt a bit more at home mm -hmm. and they created a kind of colonial empire there. Whereas in in what uh, in in the Middle East, you know, along you know what is now Israel, Lebanon, and and Syria, you know, they went there and they may have had vassal kings and expected to be receive tribute or fight wars. They didn't necessarily want to live there. It was a bit yeah. yeah. So this period is the basically the late Bronze Age, right? And I was interesting to the history of I didn't I didn't realize and I've been studying history my whole life too, but I didn't realize his ancestry was you know Akhenaten was the the first um, monotheistic I guess person, and that was he's so, well he was before he's not related to he had no children, right? So then Ramsey's grandfather became. A pharaoh, and there is a process for that to happen without 
being an actual blood relative, I guess. Yeah, well, th that was the thing. In, in fact, Akhenaten, who again is often considered to be kind of the world's first monotheist, and there's a, there are debates among Egyptologists about exactly what that means. Um, now, he did have uh, at least one son who was the probably the famous Tutankhamun. Oh, right. But Tutankhamun, on the other hand, did not apparently have an heir. Uh, in fact, they even found in his tomb that the mummified remains of two stillborn fetuses that had math evidence of mass massive birth defects. Mm -hmm. And so when he died without children, it was necessary to appoint one of the members of the of the royal court, one of the high officials. And in fact, you had this uh, strange period of political turmoil where the next three kings were non-royals that were appointed to become um, pharaoh. And the first two of them, in fact, also died without having children. Oh, and right. then finally, Ramsey's grandfather, whose original name was Paramesu, who was a, a, a vizier, a kind of Egyptian prime minister, and he was also a senior general of the army, was promoted to be the heir to the throne. And of course, he already had a, a son who was in vigorous adulthood, a man named Seti, who was Ramsey's father. And uh, and so this Paramesu, who became Ramses I and Seti I, these, these two kings, they had served as high officials, they had served as generals, and they were, uh, although Ramses I only rules for a couple of years or less than a couple of years, his, uh, his son Seti, who is the father of Ramses II, has a very successful year, uh, reign of about a decade and sort of sets the stage for Ramses II but then is ultimately overshadowed by his famous son. Sure. Uh, so that not many, as many people know about poor old Seti. I did my dissertation right. on him, but he, if we, if there was no Ramses the second, everybody would be talking about Seti. But of course, yeah, because uh, that must have been quite a, a, you know, like a quite a um, term, you know, a lot of turmoil at that period. That, yeah. You know, a lot of Game of Thrones stuff going on there. But then because they didn't have any heirs. And then when Seti was pharaoh, he set up Ramses as the, um, you know, as the crown prince. And then he set him up with a couple of wives. And then, wow, Ramses had a lot of children, didn't he? Yes, and that, that's the other thing. One of the one of the extraordinary things about Ramses is just how many children he seems to have had, and and also the, the fairly large number of wives that he must have had. Now. These ancient pharaohs, and in fact, a lot of the other ancient kings, even Solomon in the Bible, or these Babylonian, Assyrian, Hittite kings, they were what we call polygamists. They they had multiple wives and sometimes fathered probably very large numbers of children. But even among the pharaohs who were also polygamists, nobody seems to stand out on the same level yeah. as Ramses II. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do 
not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water... It starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. And trying to to account for every one of these kids is is sometimes a bit of a detective (laughs) work. But my best estimate at this point is we're talking about something like 48 sons and about 50 53 or 54 daughters but it quite literally is just over 100 this doesn't necessarily mean this is even all the children that he had these are just perhaps the ones we know about and of course the same thing happens (laughs) that sounds funny you know when someone says how many kids you know when a guy says uh, uh, how many kids you have two that i know about he literally says i have about 98 kids that i know about Well, of course, he knew about them, but we're, we, of course, because, again, ancient records are fragmentary, uh, we don't always know. And and what's interesting, though, is the wives. Uh, he must have had several wives uh, early on, even when he was a prince and, and his father sets him up with a household. They call it a female household that he's given comparable to the beautiful maidens of the palace. And one of the inscriptions tells us, and it tells us that Ramses, you know, and he was a teenager. So, I mean, they gave him a bunch of, uh, of young ladies and said, get busy, you know, didn't have to be asked twice. Yeah, and, I guess not. Uh, and of course, it was important for the king right. uh, and the crown prince to actually procreate and ensure the continuation. Right. Especially the from where they were coming from, all that turmoil with all those people who didn't have them. And then he did really come from a military family. So I guess we could believe in there's, you know, he was an actual, you know, he probably did go on campaign and. He might not have single-handedly fought everybody, but he seemed like he probably knew what he was doing. Yes, and, and in fact, both in terms of the traditions of the warrior pharaohs, is that that we know that even before uh, we have cases of uh, princes that we hear about their military training, 
but of course, uh, you know, the the family of Ramses uh, before they became pharaohs were actually a, a line of military officers. So right. it was both in the family tradition, but also for a crown prince of Egypt who would one day be a war leader as pharaoh, it was important to get the on-the-job training as a warrior. And we know this interestingly as well with Seti that he carefully prepared Ramses um, to to take his place and to do everything a pharaoh was supposed to do, including uh, to be a war leader. And so we know that even as a prince that Ramses participated, Seti himself was no slouch on the battlefield. He fought a number of aggressive wars and he seems to have brought Ramses along on campaign, even when he was quite young. Yeah, I definitely you, you don't you cover it's you cover everything so well in the book. I have to say it's like it's very readable, but it's also it's you could tell it's I mean if you want to know anything about Ramses, if you're doing research anything, it's all in there. I mean it's all footnoted, but it's it's not like reading a, a I mean I read a lot of history, right? But it's not like reading that. It's like reading an actual story. So you're definitely a, a good writer, and it's definitely an easy an easy read, and there's a lot of information. I didn't get to it. I don't know as I got through a lot of it, but you know, if you think believe in the Exodus, which is the whole thing I don't really believe in, but and we maybe talk about that. He he's kind of sometimes thought of Ramses is the pharaoh of the Exodus, right? If there were, I mean, you know, in common, um, I don't know, pop fiction, maybe something like that. Well, I mean, it, it is one of these very hotly debated issues, and you know, among Egyptologists or, you know, biblical scholars, et cetera, they're different viewpoints. Um, the, the thing is with, with uh, we have evidence from Egypt that seems to corroborate some details, but only the very broad details uh, of, of places that are mentioned in the Bible. So for instance, in, in the, the Exodus account, you have the, the reference to what are called the store cities of Pithom and Ramses. And these refer to actual places uh, that, that are, are found in, you know, in Egypt. And in fact, if, uh, the city of the so-called city of Ramses is, is the capital that Ramses II uh, built in the northern, northern part of the Delta, in the eastern side of the northern Delta, at a place which he called Piramises, the house of Ramses. Um, now, again, whether or not the Exodus happened or that whether it happened in the way the Bible describes it is is another matter that again is fiercely debated. I I essentially don't take a stand on that. It's not something I've sort of really focused on. But again, one can make arguments for and against the the historicity of the uh, the Exodus. I I like just to say that's beyond my pay grade. I yeah. <laughs> mainly focus on uh, on the Egyptian side of things. Uh, but there's uh, one of the interesting things is. is that after Ramses, his successor, a man named Merneptah, in fact, has, as far as we know, the earliest, uh, outside of the Bible itself, the earliest reference to, uh, to the ancient Israelites is found in an inscription uh, from the time of the pharaoh Merneptah, shortly after the death of Ramses II, that refers to a group of people in Canaan as being the Israelites. And it's interesting mm -hmm. because it mentions this, uh, the Israelites, uh, and the name is written in hieroglyphs, but it's clearly the name of Israel. But it refers to them not as, it refers to Israel not as a place 
like a city or a country, but rather as a group of people. And we can tell this because of the way the, the name is written out in hieroglyphs. The Egyptians could distinguish with special hieroglyphs, whether you're right. talking about a place or a city or a group of people. Now, again, whether that means that the exodus must have happened under Ramses right. II or not, that's, again, very hotly debated. And I must admit, I, you know, I, I don't take a stand on that. Uh, the latter part of my book, I do, though, talk a bit uh, about the, the memory of Ramses from ancient times down to modern times and how he was rediscovered, you know, when uh, Egyptology was born in the 1800s and they were discovering all these monuments and they deciphered the hieroglyphs. And already by about the 1850s, ancient historians, you know, historians of the ancient world were pegging Ramses as the pharaoh of the Exodus. And ever since, he is usually considered to be, if anybody is, that he's the most likely candidate for the uh, the the uh, pharaoh the exodus but of course that depends on whether or not you believe the exodus is a historical event now the bible doesn't feel the need to name the pharaoh by name right. it just calls him pharaoh it right. doesn't matter what his name is he's the pharaoh yeah that's interesting and that is a whole other topic i have a friend who he has another podcast it's the podcast of biblical proportions and it gill Kadron from Israel, and he covers it pretty. He he's, he really digs into the stories, and he could speak Hebrew too, so he understands how you know this story was actually a lot of the story was written. He feels about Nebuchadnezzar, you know, when they say Pharaoh's making us, um, you know, get won't give a straw to make more br bricks and things like that. It was really because possibly something happening during the Babylonian captivity, and then was changed over time but that's a whole other story and i also just learned how to pronounce how do you say i always said mernepta but it's pronounced differently well it, all of these pronunciations are rather uh artificial i mean mernepta or merenpata uh i mean uh i i think the um, an attempt to pronounce it how it might have actually been pronounced yeah. might have been uh Minata or something, but even like Ramis, Ramses, sometimes people say Ramses or Ramesses. I think it was pronounced something like Riamasesa, but oh, okay. a, it's a dead language. Yeah. Nobody's spoken it for thousands of years, and we're trying to reconstruct it. And, and so, all the, the even the spellings of the names. This is all sort of modern artificial pronunciations. And, if even an Egyptologist that knows Egyptian might go back into ancient Egypt and try to speak it, and they wouldn't understand. Right, you have a terrible accent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you get laughed up. So, can you read hieroglyphics? Yes, that's one of the main things Amazing. I, I do, uh, and I, I teach classes here at the University of Memphis, reading historical texts. Because my, I, I'm not an archaeologist. I don't like dig holes in the ground. My, yeah. my job is recording monumental inscriptions and interpreting. Of course, the Egyptians wrote their history on on these monuments. So, reading and deciphering uh, the inscriptions is how you essentially decipher the history of Egypt. And of course, one of the interesting things that I, that this always fascinates me, and I talk a little bit about it in some places in the book, is of course because every culture rewrites their history. When the Egyptians rewrote their history. Uh, they rewrote the, the monuments. And Ramses in particular is sometimes also gets a bad rap for his, uh, what we consider rather bad tendency 
to erase the names of earlier kings on mm. monuments and statues and reinscribe them with his own name. And this to us strikes us as almost like he's stealing credit for other people's yeah. uh, works. And again, he gets a rather bad rap, but if we understand this from the perspective of ancient Egyptian civilization, this reuse of monuments and even their view of history was was just different from our own. And, and so this was quite, uh, from the Egyptian perspective, was actually perfectly uh, a legitimate thing to do. So how so how how did you learn how to read hieroglyphics? Is that really does it take a long time? Is there a lot to it? I mean, yeah. I imagine not not many people do it, so it's quite yeah. difficult. Yeah. I mean, we here in the University of Memphis, for instance, or where I study also in the University of Toronto, it it's the kind of thing the graduate students are like, you know, masters and doctoral students. It's not usually something that undergraduate, you know, four-year college students are doing, although it's it's possible. It is a dead language. You don't. You're not learning how to speak it. You're learning to decipher it. Uh, the hieroglyphs. You know all those little picture signs. People think that's the hardest part. Part of it is just being able to understand the grammar and the and and uh, the phraseology of of an alien language that is right. different from our own. And then, of course. Uh, there, and of course, reading texts from a culture that is also very different from our own. And you can learn the basic rules about how to read Egyptian texts probably, you know, in a, in a couple of years, uh, even after, you know, a, a few months of study, you can begin to read your first texts. But on the other hand, as one of my professors said that, you know, it can take 10 years before you might feel fully comfortable uh, reading mm -hmm. these texts. So it, it is something, you know, that is a process. And so, and and Ramses did put a lot out there. A lot of it is uh, on stone and marble and things like that. There's, is there papyrus too? Yes. There, the, the, the kind, uh, you know, when I wrote, my, uh, the, when I'm writing about the Pharaoh and most of the documents that I, I translate in the book are actually these monumental inscriptions. These are things that are literally carved in stone on the walls of temples, on these giant statues and obelisks, on these stone tablets where they used to essentially make announcements uh, called stelae. It's like a tombstone, an upright slab of stone with inscriptions on it is a stele. And they used it as sort of like billboards or announcement uh, where they would set these things up to announce, you know, their, their glorious deeds. Uh, th those kind of things are written in the hieroglyphic script. Uh, on the other hand, on papyrus, uh, they would write things that had to do with religious uh, text, but also everyday uh, everyday text that you know administrative, or if you wrote a letter, uh, even things like you know love songs and laundry lists mm -hmm. and poetry and just post-it notes. And again, if you're, uh, they even had a special cursive script that was just for writing text quickly because. I mean, if you're trying to write, you know, your your shopping list, and you spend all day drawing these beautiful little hieroglyphs, right. <laughs> you'll never get you'll never get done. And and so instead, you know, they did it with ink on papyrus or little flakes of stone or pottery, just very quickly in pen and ink, and it just looks like, um, you know, it just looks like calligraphy. 
and even yeah. and and so but it, those are different types of text for you know compared to the kind of official pronouncements that are carved on the walls of the temples or on giant royal monuments yeah well it's, it was I'm glad that they did it because we have so much information because they did do that I mean, it's it's funny, even like, you know, you could take things from the Middle Ages in Europe. We don't have information. We have so much more information from something so further back. Yeah, we're, we're lucky on the one hand, the, all these inscriptions that were written on um, on on st in stone that obviously it's very durable. I mean, the Egyptians used to call uh, stone construction the good work of eternity. And they, one of the types of names they had for the temples that they would build were called mansions of millions of years, because, again, they considered to be, you know, something that would last forever. And, of course, it has lasted for, you know, three yeah. millennia in the case of Ramses. On the other hand, uh, we do have a lot of papyrus, only a fraction of what the Egyptians ever created. But compared to other places in the world, because the deserts of Egypt right. are so dry, when these uh, papyrus documents made their, you know, put in a tomb or buried in some place in the desert, they have often managed to survive, although the vast majority were not stored away in a dry place, and they have long since disappeared. But again, because of the environment of Egypt, yeah. otherwise very fragile documents written in papyrus have survived in relatively large numbers. Did you, isn't it recently, did you see it that they found, I think it was like, a, is it 50 meters long roll that they found just recently in a, a Book of the Dead, I think? Oh, that, that wouldn't surprise me. That, that was the one of the things, of course, they made scrolls and they would make these very long sheets or paste them all together. And yeah, there are some scrolls like that. I, 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 didn't, I haven't, I've never seen one myself that is that quite that long, but I've, I've seen them that go on for yards and yards. Amazing. So the book, what? How, I mean, you, I could say how long did it take you to write it? Probably your whole career, because in some ways, you know, you've been learning it all the time. But just, you know, just what what made you start it, and how long did it take you? That kind well, of thing. I when I finished my my doctoral studies back in the University of Toronto in the late nineties and published my book on it's a very scholarly. It's not nearly as fun as as this book is, but on this Ferrocetti. Uh, in 2000, I thought, well, you know, I want to, I want to write a book about Ramses and and do some. I toyed around with the idea. I've done a lot of scientific, you know, studies, you know, very technical stuff. But I said, you know, I want to make something that's more accessible. You know, explain what I do and why it matters. One of my undergraduate mentors in the history department at, in in the University of Texas, you know, said that good history is good literature. You know, it should be readable. Yeah. And, it, and you know, Egypt's so fun. It's it's interesting. And Ramses, he has a great story. And I wanted to tell this story. And so a, a lot of it is just, you know, working to, to craft a narrative and to, you know, make it interesting. I mean, it is that. It's definitely well-written and it's quick, but you have a footnote too, so I mean, it's it's both. You could see it's a lot of work. A lot of work. I mean, just sometimes I look at the footnotes and I think I would be so tired if I had to do all this work, so really, I mean, yeah. how, what's your process like? How, how, do you, how long do you write and that kind of thing? Well, I, I, part of it is, I mean, I have actually learned a lot about writing from working on this project. I mean, good writing, making it interesting, making it accessible, uh, and just, you know, writing is, you know, uh, 
good literature as opposed i mean scholarly writing it's so easy because you just can you know go on yeah. and on you know in 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 a dry tone that nobody really but i mean if you want to sell the book if you want people to be interested and not put it down after reading a paragraph then that's the hard part yeah I, I I guess I I give I give popular lectures and uh, that and I had a friend in grad school that was that actually worked for a Canadian broadcasting company and basically taught taught me a lot about how to tell a good story and and so that's what I tried to do and, and I, a lot of the time that it's taken I've been working on this probably for about ten years a lot of it wow. is, is is actually working through to to craft that narrative and to make it as accessible and as interesting without being cheesy hopefully but also no not cheesy not, but not, i mean just all the footnotes and all the details either. to yeah. prove everything you say it's not like you're graham hitchcock you know and you just say like hey aliens or landians built the pyramids and all this nonsense with zero evidence and then make fun of people who don't you know who do the evidence it's like so aliens did not build the pyramids right we know that not so much <laughs> drives me crazy does it drive you crazy because it just drives me crazy that stuff oh well you know it's it's just you know uh, to each his own i suppose i don't i don't lose too much sleep over it right although i did debunk one sort of weird little theory that goes on it's it's in the book yeah i find yeah tell us about that because i know what you're talking about there's there's an inscription in this temple at a place called abydos in southern egypt it was a temple that I knew well because it was built uh, originally by Ramsey's father, King Seti. It has these beautiful carvings, uh, really exquisite, uh, very fine carvings that Seti was making. But unfortunately for poor old Seti, he didn't quite live long enough to fulfill all his giant building programs. And when he died, his son Ramses completed the temple and there were places where, uh, and again, this was something that often happened in, in in ancient Egypt, especially in the in this period, is that there were places where Ramses carved over inscriptions that had already been carved by uh, his father. And it was nothing personal. Again, it wasn't some vendetta mm-hmm. or, you know, right. attacking dear old dad or anything like that. Uh, but because of, uh, it, there's this inscription that shows an overlapping set of hieroglyphs. And it's it's sort of like a word jumble. Imagine, you know, when you, your printer prints two lines on top of each other by accident. Yeah. It's sort of like that, except with hieroglyphs. But of course, these are pictures. And, you know, when you overlap these things, they make these little suggestive shapes. And one of the shapes these overlapping hieroglyphs made to some people is what they thought they saw was a helicopter. <laughs> and then they looked at some other things and they thought they saw everything from a hovercraft to a jet or maybe it's a submarine. Uh, one point they said, maybe this is a, is a, is a, is a, a <laughs> you know is like a glider one of them actually oh, yeah. one of them looks like the land speeder from the original star wars oh, yeah. <laughs> but but it's all a jumble of hieroglyphs and i showed the and of course people focus on this little bit right you know, it has these suggestive shapes now there are other things that just don't add up there's strange shapes nobody can explain and there's the rest of the inscription so one of the things i do in the with a nice diagram and explaining all this you know that you're it's sort of like when you see uh shapes in the clouds yeah. or you or you get a you know a, a potato ship that looks like you know a person or something like that but i mean those cloud dragons uh, you know that you see floating across the sky are no more real 
than this uh, helicopter of the Bidens. But but the human mind wants to see familiar shapes and strange objects. And of and course, sells TV shows and I guess yeah, movies. Yeah, of course, and, and it's a, it's a, and of course, it, the conspiracy theorists like to say, oh, is you know, you're suppressing the real knowledge. As <laughs> as an Egyptologist, I get these emails like at least once a month, sometimes once a week. Uh, from people, they've got a new theory about how the pyramids were really built. Or I had this one guy that was kept sending me these pictures that were like apparently of satellite images that were with these strange color coded. And he was convinced that he was discovering a series of gigantic statues buried around the world of giant animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 just bizarre stuff. And, I was, and after I got a couple of these and I said, well, I tried to explain this. I said, oh, you know, our our minds work this way. It's just like we see familiar faces and inanimate objects or we see right. you know, like things Mars. in the clouds and this kind of thing. Right. And he writes back and says, so how much do they pay you to t- tell me? Oh, that? my God. And it's like, dude, they do not pay me nearly <laughs> enough for that. No, they do not pay me. I know. I don't it's like get the... paid to, to debunk, you know, your nonsense. But, you know. Crazy. <laughs> so, wait, now I do want to ask you, though, how how were the pyramids built? I mean, I think we kind of know now, don't we? Because whenever somebody gets tells me and I say, that's not how we know how they were built, but I don't, you know, just tell us quick, maybe, because I know it's yeah. not about Ramses. Well, all these, these ancient monuments, they didn't even really have cranes. Uh, it, it's sort of almost like additive printing. You set, you set the foundations down, um, you know, you clear a site where you're going to build a pyramid, you bring in the first layer of blocks and set them into place. And then they used um, rampways that were made from mud bricks and field stones and that. And you drag the next layer of blocks up this ramp uh, and lay them into place. And then you raise the ramp, extend it. And as you go, you just keep extending the ramp, raising the ramp and bringing the next layer of blocks up. And when you finally built the, the, the building, uh, it's, you know, it has these rampways. With the pyramids, people, scholars debate the shape of the ramps. How many ramps were they entwined? But everybody knows basically that that's how this right. was done. Now, of course, you say, well, where are the ramps? Well, you wouldn't leave the ramp when you're right. finished. Just, it's like a scaffolding. There are, however... Uh, there's a one pyramid that it's actually they when they 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 smoothed the the blocks down when they were finishing the pyramid, you could actually sort of leave see this little shadow like a groove where the ramp probably was. Oh, okay. And and then there like right next to the Great Pyramid, there's a smaller uh, temple of I mean a smaller uh, a tomb of a high official. It wasn't nearly fraction of the height of a pyramid, but it it actually has one of these rampways still attached to it. And then where I work, recording inscriptions at the Temple of Karnak, there's one of these uh, tower gateways that actually has the remains of, of one of these mud brick rampways. And finally, okay. we have artistic scenes in Egyptian tombs that actually show these ramps that are used to build these monuments. So there's really no question that this is how they did it. I mean, not helicopters then? No helicopter, no, no levitation, <laughs> nothing like that. Sound, none of that. Well, oh. so the book back to the back. Sorry, I just had to ask you that. So now I have at least a recording of it. Someone I get to say to the, you know. So back to the book though. So is it ready yet? It's is it out? Is it published? It's almost yeah. It's it's actually being printed as we speak in in uh, Lithuania. 
Nice. And so it, it should be uh, finished at the printers very shortly. And then, of course, it has to be shipped to the state. So I'm I'm hoping that, you know, sometime in, uh, if not by the end of February, then into March, that it will actually appear. Um, and it's going to be available as a, the, the hardcover is rather expensive, but the softcover is, is, is we, they, we tried to keep it as low as possible. And it'll also be available in an ebook format. So if I go into Borders or a bookstore, will I maybe see it? I'm not sure about uh, a lot of the bookstores, but it'll certainly be available online. And, and some I know there's some museum bookshops and this kind of thing that will make it oh, okay, right. available. Um, uh, as I say, some of these kind of books, uh, when you go, I know when you still go to these bookstores like Borders to the extent they still exist anymore, right. you know, the, the selection of ancient history books is usually pretty thin. Of course, that's the wonderful thing about Amazon and everything is you can just get any kind of right. books there. And so it'll be there. And um, yeah. But this is not a this is not just a text. This is not a textbook at all. This is a book for any person, a fan, a history fan, a lay person that wants to read. It's there's a, like I said, there's a lot of pictures in it. But, you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm tr it's, I'm trying to read some multiple audience. On the one hand, you know, it's it's hopefully of use to students that are learning about history and ancient Egypt and ancient history. For you know, it is the first major new English book, uh, you know, a broad look at Ramses II that is a, sort of an original work. Uh, there was a guy, uh, sort of one of the masters of the field of Egyptology in the time of the Ramesside kings, uh, who wrote his uh, biography of Ramses back in 1982. Okay. It was much briefer, but nobody had really, in English, there's a in a French book, I think, but uh, yeah. that had really done a new serious account of Ramses really since then. And so I know there are some popular books out there, but some of them even will say, oh, you know, I just I just followed what Kitchen said, this fellow Kenneth Kitchen, who okay. was writing back in the early 80s. So I've, I, and again, I've worked with these sources. I've studied these uh, inscriptions. Most of the translations of these uh, hieroglyphic texts from the book are actually my translations, okay. translated directly from the glyphs. Even some of the artwork of the of, uh, of the in, uh, in inscriptions and and the, the scenes and the temples and that kind of thing is my own. Oh, you drew them. I know you're. Yeah, they're very detailed. Yeah. I mean, I'm gonna take I'm gonna take some time now because I just got, I really just started to read it like a week and a half ago, and like I said, I really got through a lot of it because it's so well written. But I didn't get a chance to like peruse the pictures, and of course, I'm reading it from a PDF, so I don't have the book. So as soon as it comes out, I would definitely gonna get myself one. Put it right on the coffee table so all my guests could read about Ramsey's. <laughs> Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. 
Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com And um, I don't want too many spoilers because people should read the book, but I mean, maybe wrapping it up. So Ramses was in his 90s when he died and he outlived most of his children. Right, so Mernepta, Mernepta, yeah, <laughs> he was about seventy years old when he when he when he became the pharaoh, right? Yeah, I mean, he it was it, at the very least he was somewhere in his sixties. I mean, I, I, I again, it can be hard to estimate the age at death. Yeah. Of what he, when, I mean, unlike so many historical figures, we actually have the bodies of a number of these pharaohs, including Seti and Ramses and Mernepta. But just because you have a body doesn't always make it possible to know exactly how old they were when they died. So again, it is it's sort of educated guesswork. But yeah, Marinopta must have been himself in his mid sixties uh, and maybe even in his seventies when he. But he apparently inherited the genes that that kept his father alive. Yeah, so he's long. like Prince Charles. <laughs> <laughs> but worse because he was he wasn't even the crown prince. It was so many others until he became. Yeah, well, that, that was the thing. I mean, Ramses outlived uh, so many, including the first, and this doesn't mean there weren't younger sons as well, but the, the first 12 of his, uh, the the oldest 12 sons he had uh, died before him. I mean, one of them had been the, his eldest son, firstborn son, was crown prince for uh, about 20 years or so. The, the second one, who was also named Ramses, I, I call him Ramses Jr., because yeah, he doesn't they, have a number, right? He didn't, yeah, he didn't become pharaoh, so he never was Ramses III. It was actually 100 years later, there was a guy that was eventually called Ramses, we called Ramses III. But um, poor old Junior, uh, he had the job for for the better part of 20 to 30 years, but again, he died before his father. Uh, and so it, finally, it was Mernop taught that man to live the old man, as it were. Amazing. And then this is basically kind of like, this is sort of the swan song of the the glory of Egypt, right? Because we have the Bronze Age collapse not too much longer after after that. And then... Yes. <clears throat> well, the, the end of, I mean, some, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a process, but, you know, between about 1200 and 1100 BC uh, is this century that people talk about, uh, you know, the end of the Bronze Age. Now, I mean, these kind of big events in history, uh, it's hard to sort of pin it down. And of course, back then, it was news to them. If you said, it right. was like, you know, they went, 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 woke up one day and said, oh, my God, the Bronze Age is over. What do we do now? You know, it wasn't like people woke up in Florence, Italy in 1400 and said, holy, you know, it's the, it's the Renaissance. You know? <laughs> I know but, exactly. You're right, but, but I mean, on on the other hand, uh, th- this was a, a cataclysmic kind of uh, transition, at least for the these large uh, empires. 
you know, Egypt lost its overseas, uh, you know, imperial territories, which I guess is great for the people that were under Egypt. Right. Um, you know, wasn't so great to be the a subject of an empire. The Hittites, this great civilization, and that had been Egypt's enemy, and then of course Ramses had made peace with them. Uh, they went down the tubes. Other uh, empires and even other civilizations that weren't quite empires uh, also went into decline. But there were some other groups that actually did quite well, including a group that became known in the Bible as the Philistines, and yeah. also uh, the 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 Israelites, of course, who had been this uh, yeah. minor people in Canaan in the time of Merneptah of course, would then carve out uh, the, the kingdom of Israel. And the, they were the ones that sort of inherited uh, the, the, or filled the vacuum, at least in Canaan, after the collapse of all these Bronze Age empires. Yeah. Well, I think that about covers it, don't you think? Oh, there's lots more. I'm but sure I mean, there's lots, but I mean, for it. us to talk about it, because I really, like I always say, when we do the podcast, no spoilers, because I mean, there, we, of course, we miss a ton of things. It's a full, it's about... I mean, how many pages is the book? About 500, 600 pages? Yeah, I mean, there's also, I will say, there's also a good index. There's one thing I always tried to do. And uh, and and there's uh, also a, a, several uh, pages of, of a useful, what I call a glossary, which is like, if you hear me talk about Hattasili III or, or, or a palimpsest and you have no idea what that is or who the god Thoth is, I have a little handy uh, guide in the back that sort of gives oh, you okay. definitions. And the, and the other thing, uh, one last thing I wanted to just say that another focus of the book that I that is uh, uh, not really done in detail, uh, except in very specialized, often foreign, like German uh, publications. One of the, the big stories about Ramses I tell that even a lot of Egyptologists are not as familiar with is his role as, as a diplomat, a very a canny statesman and his his negotiations with the Hittites. And uh, he got into this uh, wonderful uh, correspondence with the, the queen of the Hittites, a woman with this uh -huh. rather impressive name of Purukepa. And they they bartered for a bride because he wanted to marry a, a Hittite princess. And the, the 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 Hittite queen basically drove a very hard bargain in the yeah. negotiations, <laughs> and was perhaps the only person that basically told Ramses what, in no uncertain terms, what she thought of him, and yeah. and basically <laughs> made his ears burn. And 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 it, it's it's a fun story. It's you know I just I just like maybe an hour before we started talking, I caught that part, of the, and I was just going through, and I didn't have time to go through it all, so I mostly just read her. Her stuff, but he is amazing. So the way she writes to him and um, just, yeah, they're going back and forth and he's bartering over. Don't you have enough money already? And stuff like that. It was great. Really good. <laughs> yeah, I recommend this to um, any fan of history. I mean, you know, you, you know, you got to at least know what ancient Egypt is. I have friends who don't, you know, they think that I know all this stuff that I'm not. I'm not a tenth. I don't know a tenth that Dr. Brand here knows. But, you know, if you're any kind of listener to this podcast i think you will definitely enjoy this book i'm going to tell my friend sai history but sai he's a big fan of egypt and you know he does these youtube videos he's 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 more popular than me but he he'll definitely like this too i'm going to maybe maybe sai will get you that for your christmas or your birthday sure <laughs> and i've actually done a few things on youtube from uh, public lectures that i've done in fact i just recently did one about uh, tutankhamen who, uh, along with Ramses, was one of my great interests in Egypt, even since I was a kid, you know, 
King Tut's gold. And in fact, that's what the 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 talk is about, about how gold was okay. used in King Tut's tomb. That's another Yeah, because I think you and I are about the same age. And I think uh, I remember in the when we were kids that isn't in they had King Tut was on tour, wasn't he? Yes. I was actually once supposed to see him. Um, but we moved shortly before the uh, the exhibit came, and I, uh, it took me years before I finally got to Cairo and to be able to see King Tut's oh, amazing. in person. That's amazing. Yeah, I would like to go to Egypt someday. It's safe to go, I imagine. I mean, people, oh, yes. you know. I, I think so, absolutely. And, the, it's, yeah. the, you know, it's a good time to go. Um, and uh, and it's, it's, the Egyptians are very hospitable people. They're very friendly. Um, yeah. It's a it's a it's a great place to see, and there are all these sites. There's new sites being opened up. We're all waiting for this giant new museum, this sort of super museum. Uh, it's called the Grand Egyptian Museum. That's opening okay. right next to the pyramids in Cairo. Amazing. It's going to be amazing. Yeah, yeah. I think I saw that in your book, right? It's like three hundred million dollar investment they're putting in this, something like that, or maybe I'm thinking of something else. That's in yeah. Athens. I just read in Athens they're building one too. Yeah, but this is, they said, the largest museum dedicated to any one civilization. I mean, it's it, you, you you could mistake it for an aircraft assembly plant. It's absolutely oh, wow. huge, yeah. They're going to want but, some of their stuff back, I think. Well, they, 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 it's going to be incredible. And, of course, they'll put the Tut stuff there. But the centerpiece, of course, getting back to my friend, is that the the foyer to the museum is one of these giant colossal statues of King oh, Ramses wow. that's in the museum. Yeah. Amazing. So yeah, the name of the book, right, is Ramses to Egypt's Ultimate Pharaoh. You'll be able to get it on Amazon for sure. And probably um certain bookstores, but definitely on Amazon. And I will um I'll put some links in the in the podcast notes. I'll put any if you send me any links to anything you want me to put in there, I'll put in the podcast notes so people can know where to get it. If you have a website, that kind of thing. Yes, I can do that. And um yeah, did I miss anything? Anything else you want to tell the listeners? Oh, well, um, just uh, I hope you enjoyed the book. Yeah, I think they will. Yeah, well, thank you for uh, thank you for uh, doing this podcast with us and what's new in history. I'll just say real quick to our fans, if you could check out our Facebook page, check out our Patreon, share this episode, share any episode, but especially this one with your friends and enemies. And uh, I thank you very much again, Dr. Peter Brand and your book, Ramsey's Two, Egypt's Ultimate Pharaoh. Thank you very much. Thanks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time.